We are back in Exodus 25 this morning, so I invite you to turn there with me. We've moved into this portion of Exodus. The Lord is giving instruction to Moses on the mountain. These are the blueprints, chapters 25 through 31, the blueprints for the tabernacle and the the furnishings of the tabernacle, and they have a parallel with the actual construction of these things, and that's chapters 35 through 40. So we're going to take uh, those parallel sections together, uh, remembering that the Lord God is the master architect of the tabernacle and all of the furniture that's a part of it. Uh, He provides every detail, and so we're going to look at these individual pieces in the tabernacle that all... All these details come together. You take all of these strokes and it paints a beautiful picture. Maybe the most uh, complete picture of the work of Jesus Christ that we have. One commentator that I read this, uh, looking at this passage, I don't think it's a stretch. He said that the tabernacle and its furnishings, probably the most comprehensive detailed revelation of Jesus as the Son of God that we have in the Old Testament. Um, That's really saying something, if that is true. I hope it encourages us to give uh, attention to these details in the latter portion of Exodus here. So the Lord instructs the people through Moses. They they bring their contributions, their free will offerings for the building of the tabernacle. Um, they bring in abundance for this uh, palace um, fit for a king. So we're going to pick up at verse 10 in chapter 25. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So now we'll jump ahead to chapter 37. Here the Lord designates two men. They're filled with the Spirit to supervise uh, the craftsmanship, the artistry that's going into the tabernacle. One of those men is Bazalel that we'll read of here. Bazalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold 
and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. This is God's living word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that you would speak to us in a way that we can understand through your word. We are grateful for your presence with us as we consider this work, this furnishing of your tabernacle and your presence with the people that came along with it. Lord, guide our understanding. Grow our affection for Christ, a deeper love for the sacrifice that has been made for us, the love that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think I'll start by asking how you would eat a Reese's peanut butter cup, uh, or maybe how you would eat a hamburger. Um, I was reminded of this, well, last week, or just again last night, eating a hamburger that I eat all the way around the outside first. And I do the same thing with a Reese's peanut butter cup. Uh, because the hamburger, you know, right in the, right in the middle is where the hamburger is, is the thickest, it's the juiciest, and usually all the toppings are still there. So you get that one last succulent bite in the very center, working from the outside in, uh, you know, saving the best for last, which is what we might expect you know, with a good story or a good narrative. It's kind of building up uh, to the best part. But in Hebrew narrative, like we've just read, uh, what's listed first about the sanctuary where the people are going to, to build, that, that's what's most important. That has the prime place. God is not instructing from the outside in here. He is working inside out. The most important furnishings of the tabernacle, the most important symbols are what's listed first uh, with the Ark of the Covenant starting out. And so the Ark, along with all the other furnishings in the tabernacle, tell us a great deal about God but what it means to live and worship in His presence. Think, why this order? Why start out with the Ark of the Covenant as the first, the primary place uh, in the construction? So we're going to look at this blueprint construction, two primary lenses this morning, the making of the Ark ark, and and the meeting at the Ark. Making of the Ark, meeting uh, at the Ark. Uh, Some of you are craftsmen, craftswomen, you really enjoy measuring and cutting and fixing material together from, from scratch to get a finished project. I was thinking of, of our nativity this last year and the, the barn or the shed structure that we had there that, that Glenn put together in the course of an afternoon. He just had this in, on the top of his head. And that's what we, we got. That's craftsmanship, skilled craftsmanship. Being able to either take plans or to take something from, from one's head and, and make a finished product. So this is the kind of skill and craftsmanship that Basilil has. He's handpicked by God 
to supervise the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furnishing. Because when it comes to the ark, that's his baby. He's going to do that himself. In this case, the plans are given to him. He doesn't have to come up with a design. He doesn't have to choose the materials. Uh, the Lord gives this to him. And so he has the specific dimensions of the ark, and we're assuming this is the outside dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, a cubit. You probably have a footnote on that, but the, the length from that middle finger down to a bend in the elbow, it's around 18 inches on average. I have a little shorter cubit than most, I think. So it's about 45 by 27 by 27. So I was looking at the table earlier, and it's about from that edge to about here, and about that high from the floor. That's the size of this chest that we're talking about. Made of acacia wood, acacia wood very prevalent in the area of Sinai, very strong. It could be cut and shaped and not lose its integrity. So this is something that's going to hold up, that needed to hold up. And the chest itself, just overlaid with, uh, overlaid with gold. Four rings, two poles um, to carry the ark, all overlaid with gold. With, yeah, but, the, but it's interesting that the poles are to stay in the rings of the ark. They're not, they're not pulled out of these rings and stacked up in some corner in the tabernacle. Um, I think this is for, for a very good reason taking the poles in and out of the ark could potentially damage the Ark of the Covenant. Or it could cause damage of the more permanent kind to those who are putting the poles in and out. Maybe you remember the uh, story of Uzzah, at least the character of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. The ark was being moved in property and it looked like it was going to fall from the cart. And so Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark. It was the last thing he ever did. The presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy surrounds the ark. You're going to want to keep those poles in place. We're also told about the moldings of gold that go around its edge. Think of the crown molding you might see in some more contemporary housing. The molding to, to cover that joint between the, the ceiling and, and the wall. It's not a necessary thing when making a house. But it looks nice. You know, it, adds, it sort of dresses up. The structure a little bit. Um, the ark is no ordinary box. This is, this is unique. It's dressed up. It's, it's ornate as fitting for a king. And not just any king, the king of kings. The Lord of all creation. Uh, and to close the ark, secure the ark, was a very special piece. And we're going to talk about this uh, some more in a few minutes. Uh, but the noun we find here in the original language is formed from the verb to make atonement. So very literally, this is the atonement-making place that sits atop of the ark. And most often, you know, it's translated as a mercy seat, the place where God's mercy rests. I think the NIV does a, a great service for us, calling that the atonement cover. And on top of this cover are the, the cherubim, have you seen pictures of angels, pictures of cherubs? Usually the pictures we see of the little figurines or painted pictures are not all that accurate to the biblical description. If we have a biblical uh, description of them, uh, we do find some description of cherubim and the prophet Ezekiel uh, described as having different uh, animals for their bodies, faces, kind of like a human's face. 
and wings. It's prophetic language. Ezekiel is doing the best that he can under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe what these angelic creatures look like. Let me just read a few verses from Ezekiel 10. The prophet said, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. The house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. So where the glory of God is found, that's where you find the cherubim. These are not the messenger angels like Gabriel or or Michael that we have described for us. These are creatures known for guarding holy places. They're powerful. The only other time that we read of the cherubim before this point in Exodus is in Genesis chapter 3 where they are standing guard on the east side of Eden. So, So the depiction of these guardians with their wings was uh, the very top of this atonement cover. But the glory of God, the glory of the Lord is present with this ark. It is the footstool of God's throne. Which means that this is the place where heaven and earth are coming together, where they're, they're linked, they can't be separated from this very place, from this very peace. The infinite, eternal God and the earthly human, things we can see and and touch, enthroned in heaven with his feet resting on earth. Can you hear the importance of this? Where else do we see heaven and earth collide? Where the eternal God in all of his glory is inseparable from humanity. We could stop at John chapter 1, which we've read this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, to see the self-expression of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of God's glory. Glory of the Lord, just as glory surrounded, was present with the ark. So you've heard the phrase, you know, big things or great things come in small packages. Well, the ark of the covenant is, well, it's a fairly small box. But what it contained had uh, infinite value, it really could not be measured uh, for the people. Um, and what, what did the contents of the ark really tell them about this covenant-keeping God? And we're told of only one of the three things that were kept in the ark, and that was the testimony uh, that the Lord would give to uh, Moses. Testimony of God, His covenant words to His people, defining their relationship, the obligations that they had in this relationship. and In the ancient world, an important treaty for a nation would be stored in a a sacred place, showing that it carried the authority, the witness of the deity. So this testimony, and the ark, which is sometimes referred to as the ark of the testimony, that's where this would be stored. The footstool of Israel's king. He lays out the covenant obligations. He is the one who stands upon it. So what does this tell the Israelites? What does it tell us about God? 
It says that if, if God is making a promise, it's as good as done. I can't help but think of the, the promise made to, to Abraham, reinforced in Genesis 17. It says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. We see the Lord is unrolling this promise right before us here in Exodus. He continues to do so. He is our God. He has delivered us from the captivity of sin. He's leading us to the land of promise, our eternal inheritance. So this testimony in the ark tells us that God is this Savior, tells us that He is Lord. With this rescue, with this divine rescue of His people, comes His law, the law unto life. You and I have covenant obligations before God that makes Him Lord in all of life, as well as Savior. It's this, the testimony, the covenant obligations in all of life, that I think that's what really challenges us. Is He Lord of the conversations in your home, or the conversations in your car on the way home? Is He Lord of how you spend your money? We were reminded last week, how it all belongs to Him. Or your free time. Is He Lord over your relationships? Or are you just protecting relationships, whatever the cost? Is He Lord over your view of success? The testimony, His Word informs all of life. So there are two other items in the ark. We read in Exodus 16 that there was a jar of manna that was to be kept for the generations. Aaron ends up putting a jar of this manna in the ark so that generations to come would would know how the Lord has provided a permanent sign of His care. Not only could the Lord satisfy, He does provide for His people over and over and again. They could trust Him for this, and so the generation, their children, their grandchildren, needed to trust Him for this. So what does that sacred content tell us? It tells us He can be trusted to provide that He is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He knows every physical, emotional, spiritual need that is ours and He satisfies what we need to see Him most glorify. Our greatest good is what brings God the greatest glory. Just kind of sit with that for a second. We can get snagged on this when we don't see God meeting all of our wants or giving us what we think we need. And most of the time, it's our needs that need to be recalibrated. I mean, if the one who made you, the one who delights in you, who knows you better than you know yourself, you can trust Him for the manna each morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The last item in that container was Aaron's staff. Uh, We find uh, this narrative, number 17, where the people, again, are rebelling against the Lord. He tells Moses to gather 12 staffs from the leaders in Israel and to bring them into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle. And it's only Aaron's staff that buds, blossoms. 
which was a real confirmation that Aaron was the rightful priest among the people. So now this staff is with the Ark of the Covenant to be a permanent reminder of God's authority. He is the king. He is the ruler of his people. And we could apply this in a similar way that we, that we do the testimony. God's word, his decisions carry rightful authority. R.C. Sproul was coined for saying, when God says something, the argument is over. Perhaps you know, nothing needed more in our time, both in the church and outside the church, than to acknowledge the rule and the authority of the Lord. So now we've seen the making of the ark, we move to the, the meeting at the ark. We'll go back to verse 22 here of uh, chapter 25. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the ark is at the center. It's the focal point behind the veil of the most holy place there in the tent. This is where Moses would go to meet with the Lord. He's not going to, to see an image or another human form but that is where he would speak, face to face, as it were, with the living God. Numbers 7 gives us a little more detail. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. So Moses is receiving this instruction from the mountain and the cloud, the glory of the Lord that was over the mountain that's going to descend and settle over the tabernacle. Over that atonement cover. Where there's cherubim bowed in reverence and worship. That's where the Holy One would speak. Above the cherubim. So enthroned in heaven above the cherubim with the earth as His footstool. The testimony at His feet. Just, just think about this picture for a moment. Spatially. Here's God, all of His splendor and majesty and glory above the ark with the testimony, the law given to His people below, a law that they could not keep. And by the time that the tabernacle was built, they had sinned against the Lord in numerous ways. Holiness, righteousness of God, and the law that exposes their sin at His feet. How are they going to meet with Him? How are they going to commune with the Lord? Something has to come between. Which is exactly where the atonement cover was placed. Once a year, the high priest would enter into that most holy place with blood from the sin offering and, and throw it onto the atonement cover. At that place, through the blood of the sacrifice, God's wrath is propitiated. It's turned away. His mercy is extended. So now, now the people could meet with Him. Now they could worship Him. The Lord could dwell in their midst without consuming them because atonement had been made. My friends, there is no atonement. There is no mercy unless there is blood on the mercy seat. We're told in Hebrews chapter 9, about the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, But a few verses earlier we read of just the beauty and the depth of the gospel. 
We have substituted ourselves for God in our sin. He has substituted Himself for us through the life and death of His Son. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So now when God the Father, the Holy One of Israel, looks at the sin of His people, He sees the blood. He sees the blood of Jesus on the cross. On that atonement cover. He's fully satisfied. His mercy abounds. Those who are once far off are brought near to commune, to meet with their God. You can actually divide up that word atonement. Look at it carefully into three parts. At one meant is atonement. What a beautiful truth that is. The people, they're not strangers to this God. God is not their enemy in the wilderness. There's a oneness now. He has come close. As a father draws close to his children, their family now reconciled to him. It's that family that we find here, the family we find in the church. For all those who've been reconciled to Christ, our atonement cover, his spirit present in our midst. So consider the, the privilege we have now of approaching him, meeting with him in prayer. He wants us to meet with Him. He wants to, to hear from us. We can go to Him with confidence. As Paul says on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, because we come in the name, the finished work of Christ. So this making of the ark, the meeting that took place there, really shows a sacred union between the ark of the covenant and the Lord God. It's a symbol of God's holy presence his superiority, His power, His blessing, the people of Israel were to respect this symbol as the reality itself. And we're going to do the same thing in just a moment as we go to the table. We see and respect the body and the blood of Christ in the bread and the cup. That's a, that's a sacramental union. We can't ignore this. To ignore this, Paul says, would be very, very dangerous. So we come to the table seeing with eyes of faith the broken body, the shed blood of our Savior hanging on that atonement cover. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one. He is the place where we see the glory of God. And His hand of mercy extended to us. If you're here this morning, you've not yet received that hand of mercy. You've not repented of your sin or acknowledged that the blood must come between you and a holy God. I pray that you would turn to Him. See with new and grateful eyes what Christ has accomplished. There's no greater love than one who's willing to lay down His life as Christ has done for you. Come to the ark. Come to the atonement cover. Come to Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are our atonement. That You are the living, the living One in our midst. We celebrate Your presence. We thank You for Your presence with us. 
Lord, through this picture, through this symbol, and the symbols that we will now see and touch and smell and taste. May we know your presence. May we know the depths of your love. Fill us, renew us, refresh us. As you do through your word, do now through your table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.